Gospel of John, chapter 2. This week, we are starting a series where we consider um, the names of Jesus, or in particular, who Jesus says that He is. Now, uh, most of us, if we've been around church for any, uh, any length of time, we uh, have heard a variety of the Bible's uh, names of Jesus. But I'm going to give us some examples of those uh, that we find throughout Scripture. And we see that Jesus is the Almighty One. That Jesus is... That's in Revelation. That Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, Revelation chapter 22. We see in 1 John that Jesus is our Advocate. In the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is the Author and the Perfecter of our faith. In the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus is authority. And we see in John, one that we'll look at, that he's the bread of life. We see in Matthew that he's the beloved son of God. He's the bridegroom. He's the chief cornerstone. He's our deliverer. He's faithful and he's true. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the head of the church. Jesus is the holy servant of God, according to the book of Acts. Jesus is the I Am that we are actually looking at these next few weeks together. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the indescribable gift of God in 2 Corinthians. Jesus is the judge. He's the king of kings. He's the lamb of God. He's the light of the world. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation chapter 5. Philippians tells us that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is our mediator according to Timothy. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the mighty one. He's the one who sets us free that we see in John 8. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is peace. He's a prophet. He's a redeemer. He's the risen Lord. He's the rock, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's the sacrifice for my sins, your sins, and the sins of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of the Most High God. He's the supreme creator of all. We see that in 1 Corinthians. He is the resurrection and He is the life. Jesus is the door. He's the way. He's the word. He's the true vine. Jesus is the truth. He's the victorious one. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. We see these names about Jesus. And most of us, maybe not all of us, would say that we even can see how we believe these things. And that we understand these things. And we have concerned our faith with these things. And if someone were to ask you, is Jesus any of these things? You and I would say yes. Not all of us. Some of you just got tricked to come in here this morning. But many of us, the names of Jesus would say, of course, Jesus is that. And in the abstract way that we understand those concepts, that's true. Yes, Jesus is that. But it's really easy for us to believe abstract concepts... And miss that the promises of God, they have a personal way that they impact our lives. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses a phrase over and over and over. He says, "He, I am. And then he tells us what he is. And these I am phrases of Jesus are all 
birth from the book of Exodus. And we're going to look at these I am statements over the next few weeks. This morning we're looking at one that's actually not even spoken. It's in John chapter 2 where Jesus is at the wedding of Cana and he tells us who he is, though it's low-key, super-secret stuff. Now, let's pick up in verse, chapter 1 of verse 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Very, very point blank. And Jesus said to her, Woman, we'll get to that later, moms, because I know that's a little disturbing the way that that's worded. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, uh, Do whatever he tells you to do. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted, the master now... When the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs of Jesus. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Weddings are evidently a big deal. Uh, Hope and I, we quasi-eloped. And what I mean by quasi is we had a very small wedding 10 days after we were engaged. And her mom and her dad were there with us. And, and her brother and her sister, super small wedding. That was really my first experience with the uh, magnitude of which people look at weddings. Because Hope and I were planning to have a wedding like many of you would have had or will have or are thinking about having. And in our planning for this wedding, there comes a point where she calls me after the engagement and says, I don't want to do this. Now you can imagine the heart of a newly engaged man when he gets a phone call from his fiance, and it sounds like she doesn't want to be said fiance anymore. I don't want to do this. And I had to have her clarify what this was for the sake of my sanity. She said, no, I want to marry you. But I don't want to have to do all of these things. But people love weddings. So much so that there are wedding shows that you watch. Some of you watch Yes to the Dress, Husbands. I know you've been tortured with this. Whose wedding is it anyway? There's a show called Bridezilla's. If you are missing out, this show is named after women who are so horrendous 
that they merge the concept with Godzilla. My Fair Wedding and my favorite titled wedding show, I Do, Let's Eat. Uh, these are wedding shows. We really dealt with the reality of a wedding here as Americans two years ago because though some of our forefathers died so we did not have to care about what happened in England on wedding days, it got shoved down our throats. And we watched this and we got to see uh, people open uh, a variant of Scripture. We, we heard different things said from the stage. We got lots of commentary from various people. Weddings are a huge deal for us in 2018. However, our weddings are nothing compared to the weddings that we see in the Bible. So in the first two verses, just to reiterate, I'm going to read those two again. We see the context of this wedding. We see the context that's there. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Here's how weddings worked in the Bible. Weddings were the biggest and most important celebration among Jewish people. It was a week-long party that signaled the social status of the new couple within the community. They were such a big occasion that when we read through the Bible and we see the messianic age described, the age of the coming king, the promised one of Israel, it is often used, they often use the illustration of the wedding banquet. So this is not us getting together, for those of us who are still recovering Baptists, in a church gymnasium and eating cake at a free throw line. This is seven of a party. You don't go on a honeymoon, you sit there and party with these guests who will not leave. I don't know why the Jewish people decided to celebrate like this, because I love when guests leave my house. But they celebrated in this way. The bride and groom were treated as if they were a king and queen. And based on a little bit of the understanding of this passage, this is evidently one of the biggest weddings in Cana. The wedding was held midweek. And when we look at this, we, we see that they are showing us this massive event. Most believe that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had something to do with the wedding because of the question that we've already heard her and we'll evaluate in a moment. But Jesus is invited to this massive wedding. He's got these five new disciples with him. I would imagine the five new disciples are why they've run out of wine. And when you look at that's a joke, people. Just work with me, okay? I know it's summer and you're just sitting around at the beach all day in Freeport. Let's go with it. And we see there at this wedding, and in verse 3, Mary is concerned, and the only person that she knows to turn to is not the wedding host. It's her son. Now, for point of reference, nobody knows who Jesus is yet. Mary does. He's called these disciples kind of low-key. But no one knows that Jesus does miracles. When we look at the point and purpose of John, as we look at the introduction of what we see in chapter 2, 
We understand the purpose of John from John chapter 20, these, verse 31. These things, all of these things, are written about Jesus so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. Nobody believes that yet. The disciples who were trailing behind Him, they just believe that He offers better for whatever reason than what they had already signed up up for. So Jesus goes to her son and she is much like the most think a family member of the someone affiliated with this wedding. Jesus and here's the conversation that we see. The first conversation in verse 3, 4, and 5 is between the son and the mother. When the wine ran out she said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman. Now let's stop. If there are... Do I have anyone in here who interacts with their mother on a regular basis? Can we just raise our hands? Do not say this to your mama. Can you imagine calling mama to talk to her and addressing her as woman? I don't think that goes well for you. I don't think that that would have gone well for me. But most understand the, the breakdown of this Jewish phrasing to, to be a term of, of almost endearment. And his question is, or her, his question for her is, what's this wine have to do with me? Why does this party need to matter to me? Because my hour has not yet come. There are lots of highlights to the ministry of Jesus, right? We can read through those. We can name some of those. We've actually addressed some of those in the abstract with these names that we listed earlier. But they're never supposed to be more important than the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. What does this have to do with me, Mary? My time's not yet come. I, no one's supposed to know that I am who I am. And really, you're the only one who knows it. Then his mother looked at the servants, because listening the way that moms do sometimes, when they give you direction, she just turns and says, hey, he's going to tell you to do stuff. Do whatever he tells you. How taxing is that? I know you don't know him, and I know he's got five hobos with him. But do whatever he tells you to do. It's a lot to ask of anyone. We see that conversation between the Savior or between the Son and his mother. We then see the conversation in verses six through eight between the Savior and the servants. Savior and the servants. Six stone jars were there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, the Jewish rites of purification, I, I, when we read that phrase, we can't overlook it. Because I've always heard this story, and I've, I've heard that Jesus would turn water into wine, and I think that that's a great thing and a miraculous thing. It's why it's called a miracle, a sign of God. However... What this water comes from is significant for me and for you. 
This is not just a matter of Jesus taking clean water and making sure that it is turned into wine. These bowls of purification, 130 to 150, maybe 180 gallons worth of holding, the intent of this water was to wash dishes and clean the hands of the people. So I know you've eaten at the Panera Bread here in the city of Lake Jackson, and you've maybe gone through the drive-thru and realized the exercise of futility that that happens to be. So you eat inside now. If you are to eat inside of the Panera Bread, when you finish your bowl of soup, and I know you order the soup, uh, and you eat your bread... You walk up to the garbage can, and at the garbage can, there is a place for you to separate all of your trash, your leftover bread. Well, there's no leftover bread. But to throw away your napkins, right? And we throw away all the the stuff, the, the lettuce that we took off of our sandwich. We throw that away. And then you're to take your dishes. You don't throw those away unless you're one of my children causing your father to have to go after them. But... You take the dishes and you put them in a bucket that's there, right? Just a little rectangular thing. Imagine that those buckets were full of water. 180 gallons of the water that would go into the dish bucket. On top of that, the Jewish people would also go to these water containers and for the sake of purification they would wash their hands in there not that they had soap or anything that would equate to that but they would make sure that they had ritually cleansed their hands with this water based on chunks of Old Testament teaching So Jesus, when he goes and tells these men to grab these water basins, we're not just talking about any container. And we're not just talking about any water. We're talking about water that was the filthiest water that Jesus is going to turn into something special. Because Jesus doesn't think, doesn't take bad things and make them better. He takes filthy things and cleans them. But he doesn't just clean them, he makes them altogether different. Not just cleansed, but cleansed with intent to celebrate. Jesus sends these men to get this water and says, fill the jars with water in verse 7. They filled them to the brim. Many commentators believe that when you read through this passage, this idea of these purification jars is Jesus saying without saying, or John letting us know undertone-wise, subtly, 
that what Jesus does, the turning of water into wine, is what Jesus does with all Old Testament teaching. He takes ritual and brings that to its full, you see it to its fullest extent. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now let's look at these dudes because these servants are they don't know him. They've never met him. But they're just doing what he says to do. Mary must have been a quite an intimidating woman. And Jesus turns the water into wine. And there's no magic trick here. There's no hand motion, hocus pocus. There's no wand. All that Jesus watches, or all that these men experience is you do what I tell you to do. There's no laying on of hands of the jars asking God to bless them because God was blessing them. There's no prayer to the heavens because the heavens were in their midst. All that is there. Simple commands and ready obedience. What are the simple commands that God gives us that he calls us to ready obedience? Because the Bible's full of simple commands of Jesus. Through Paul, through John, through Old Testament teaching. What are the simple commands that God's given you? Let's just look at a couple of them. You you put your sin to death. Simple command. That's not something that God intends for us to to wrestle with from every angle. This is there. And even at four believers, this is present for you. So do everything you can to eradicate that. Well, love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. What is the simple command and where is your ready obedience? We love application. I, I think that that is one of the popular words, the buzzwords of modern Christianity. How can I apply this to my life? That's the idea that has been communicated to church after church. And I, in a sense, understand what's being said. But if we don't understand application in this following way, then we don't understand application. Because application is just a nice way to talk about obedience. Because the Bible never talks about application. You obey what God teaches us through the Bible. Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them, who acts on them. Here's the thing though. In our modern understanding of application, here's who is in charge of the scenario. When you apply, the authority of what you're applying belongs to you. When you apply, you make use of something as relevant or pertinent. But when you obey, you surrender to the relevance of what is already there. Are we obedient people to the things that God has called us to? All of this, that Jesus would turn water into wine, makes sense 
because of what God has told us about Jesus through John in the beginning in that he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He was not created, but he's the creator. And Jesus acts, turning water into wine. And when he does, this is God acting. We see the conversation between the, the head waiter and the host. The, the master of the feast is a combination of like the, the DJ and the head of the kitchen. Imagine MC Hammer, Ratatouille, and Bobby Flay just all together. Just one Vitamix blended person. So the head waiter goes to this host of the party and when he gets to him he has some wine that he's tasted but we have to think about this verses 9 and 10 show us something pretty interesting verse 8 again and then we'll go to 9 and he said to them now draw some of it and take it to the master of the feast so they took it these men have been so obedient to Jesus they are taking him this master something and they don't know what they're taking when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he did not know where it come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Can, can you imagine the fear in their hearts as they're walking with this ladle full of wine that they don't even know what it is? We're about to ask him to eat the Panera dish water, to drink the Panera dish water. He immediately runs... And called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then they drink the poor wine. But you have saved the good wine until now. Jesus has done a work so that, those, so that these people would not be embarrassed. Because if this wine had been bad, if this had just been dirty dishwater, then they would have been mocked and shamed because they had invited everyone to this party and offered something that was lacking. What does the person of Jesus provide for us that we have tasted and seen and experienced and lived in the midst of so that when we say come and see, come and see, come and see, when they come and see, it's not lacking. When we as modern believers say that Jesus has all authority when our lives do not line up with said authority, are we saying that our Jesus is lacking? When we say that the good news of Jesus has changed our lives and impacted our hearts, when that is something that we are unwilling to have conversations about, are we saying that the ability of Jesus is lacking? When we are disobedient, though the Bible calls us to obedience to what Jesus has taught us through the Word, are we saying that this Jesus who we have tasted and seen is lacking?
Jesus meets with them, provides for them a miracle, but this miracle has a purpose. And the purpose of this miracle is what we see in verse 11, the constant, go there with me. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana and Galilee. And he manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Five men who he had just called, who have just signed up, go to this wedding with him. And the first thing that we see him do is a miracle that saves face for the family that would have been embarrassed if what they had offered was short of what was expected. Jesus is showing that he provides, yes, what we need, but more than what we need. Well, where do we see that? They're already well into the party when Jesus provides nearly 200 gallons of wine. What Jesus offers us is something that is lasting and is more than we could ever imagine. The constant is this. That we see Jesus showing this first of his signs and manifesting his glory. Big Bible word. We use it all the time. And the glory of God is that Jesus is immensely important, vitally important, that he is uh, the gra of grandest importance. They believed in him. Water into wine had accomplished its purpose for the disciples. It was done so the disciples would believe because they lived in a barren land. They were less. They see Jesus do something miraculous. And when John states in chapter 1, we've seen his glory, this is the first place that we see it. His glory is manifest in his provision. In each miracle, Jesus meets another finite need. Ultimately, Jesus meeting these needs points towards our infinite need. So we're going to hear that Jesus turned, that Jesus provided bread and would tell us that he's the bread of life. We're going to see where Jesus provides sight and says that he's the light of the world, that Jesus is the resurrection. As he raises a man from the dead. Jesus is going to tell us who he is over and over. And then concretely display that he is doing these things. So that we'll see the eternal infinite needs of our hearts. I'm the light. I'm the resurrection Jesus says. C.S. Lewis, a theologian. This miracle only has half of its effect. If it only convinces us that Jesus Christ is God. It will have its full effect whenever we see a vineyard or drink a glass of wine and we remember that here works he who sat at the wedding party of Cana. That Jesus wants to interrupt and intersect our everyday situations. Not just the abstract God who we worship on Sundays, but the present God who we experience in all things. 
So what is Jesus saying to us? That in two weeks, when you go to that wedding in South Texas, it's going to be inevitably outside because people love to sweat in white. That when you attend that wedding, that you remember that this is a celebration of Jesus who you know. That every time you have a glass of wine, you don't have the wine for wine's sake, but when you taste, that you see and you experience and you know that Jesus did this miracle for the sake of showing himself. For those of you who aren't wine drinkers, and that's okay. Every time you eat a piece of wedding cake, or let's be real, groom's cake, because they always taste better. That when you taste that, you remember what Jesus did in this very first miracle of His. We remember Jesus in all things. That every time we're at a celebration, that every time we're at a birthday party, that every time we sit down and laugh, that we see that Jesus has provided things. And here's the beauty of this. This is a statement as to who Jesus is in a world where wine was a big deal. Such a big deal that if you were, that when you read through the Old Testament and you see the idea of wine, the absence of wine is the absence of joy. And the presence of wine is the presence of joy. And Jesus here, in a, in a sense... We have a wedding where there is no joy. Joy has run out and Jesus provides it in full. In a world where wine symbolizes joy, to run out of wine would mean that joy had ceased. And Jesus is saying to us, the joy that I personally give you, not abstract, the joy that I personally give you, that I have placed in your lives, it never runs out. Joy is in me and it never ceases. Because I am Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. I'm the joy of God. Are we seeing Jesus as that? We're going to take communion in a moment. Another time for us as a church to taste and celebrate that Jesus has met with us. His broken body made it possible for us to be whole. That His shed blood gives us joy in His pain. That Jesus would choose to meet with us as we take this small cracker and drink this small sip of juice. We remember that what Jesus does for us is provide fully and wholly and completely what was missing, what had ran out apart from Him. I you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray over our time as we go into this. Jesus, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for this faith family. And God, even now, I, I pray that You will help us to taste and see and know and experience that You are good and that You love us, that You're for us. Jared's going to play behind for just a moment. And I want you to think through in your own life, is the joy of Jesus present for you? Is it really present? 
Is it something that provides and meets the, the things that are lacking in, the friends, uh, in your friends' and family's lives? When they experiencing, experience you, are they experiencing the joy of Jesus? We'll think through the lyrics we may have sang earlier as you walk into this room with anxiety and stress and frustration. That in Jesus, we have someone who has fully met us on the other side of that anxiety and has provided hope and joy for us. That as we begin to walk as a church through all of these concepts of Jesus as our provider, that we see that it starts, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. So work through those things, and then at your own discretion, I want you to go take of the cup and eat of the bread and as you take of those don't just put an oyster cracker in your mouth just remember that this is Jesus saying to you that I'm with you that that I've met with you again feel released as the Lord sends you to the table